Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Christmas Eve, Great Longston, 1866. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, "'in hopes that St Nicholas soon would be there. "'It was Christmas Eve, and despite herself, "'Alice Hancock found herself traipsed in the near four and a half miles "'from her parents' home in Stony Middleton, south in the direction of Great Longston. She lived in Sheffield and was visiting for Christmas and would rather not be doing this, but there was no way she was going to let her friend Harriet go home alone. It wasn't the journey that was dangerous, rather it was the destination. Harriet had only been married a matter of weeks, but already the honeymoon period had come to an abrupt end. Her new husband, Edward, was known for his temper and its tendency when it arrived to be accompanied by an explosion of violence. His previous wife had left him for the very same reason and at 36 he was unlikely to change his ways now. So far, it had been 24 hours since he'd last hit Harriet. A break in hostility only made possible by the fact that she'd spent the previous evening nursing her wounds on the floor beside Alice's bed. As they passed through Harrop, Alice begged her friend to turn around and follow her back to Middleton Stoney. Harriet was having none of it though. It was Christmas tomorrow, and if she and Edward could celebrate it together, it may just be the thing that turned their doomed relationship around. Alice was less optimistic than Harriet. There was no need to spend another second in the company of the violent Edward, a man more familiar with the inside of Derby Jail than that of the church. He had a string of convictions and mean hands, which were in no way compensated by him having some land and a few head of sheep. It wasn't just Edward's hands that were mean, he had a mean spirit to match. Harriet had two sons from a previous relationship. The youngest, Benjamin was just 12, and though Edward was keen that his mother should share his bed, he wouldn't allow the boy under his roof. Instead, in return for labouring on Edward's land, Benjamin was offered a dilapidated and near roofless lambing shed as a place to lay his head at night. The eldest son had long since left Derbyshire, instead choosing to conscript in the British Army in order to escape poverty and see the world. The Christmas of 1866 saw him posted in Canada, repelling the raids of Irish Republican settlers in the US against what they saw as their sworn imperial enemy north of the border. At 46, ten years Edward Senior, Harriet was maintaining this imperfect situation as the only option for survival for her and her youngest son. She wasn't as young and slim as Alice, she said, Her choices, in her opinion, limited. Straightening her shock-white wig, which was ill-fitting, 
and a less than convincing cover for her alopecia. She appreciated the help her friend was offering, but she had to try and make the marriage work, however much it seemed likely to fail. On closing the farm gate behind them and stepping onto the yard of Bleaklow Farm, both women were met by a calm silence. It wasn't that Edward's temper had subsided and he was hoping to make up with his beleaguered wife. He just wasn't there. Finding the door to the farmhouse locked, Harriet retrieved the door key from its usual spot beneath a plant pot beside the door, turned it in the lock and stepped inside, asking the following Alice if she'd check the outhouses to see if an inebriated Edward could be found sleeping amongst the beasts. She was going to get the kettle on and make a pot of tea. With the kettle set up on the stove and Harriet preparing the evening meal, Alice returned. Edward was nowhere to be found. Seeing his mother and Alice returning home, Benjamin had come down from where he was working in the fields. If not tending to the herd or asleep by the fire, the only other place Edward could be, the trio concluded, was at the Newborough Arms along the way in Hassop. Asked by his mother to go and fetch him, Benjamin refused. The likelihood of him and his drunken stepfather making the journey back without the boy receiving a slap, he protested, was slim to none. Couldn't Alice go? Alice was less keen than Benjamin, but she'd be happy to prepare dinner if Harriet wanted to go. Harriet immediately rejected this, on the grounds that she hoped that the walk would sober Edward up, a little, at least, before she was forced to face him. The deadlock was broken by a knock at the door. Mr Redfern, a man from the village, was just popping in to buy some milk. Swayed, no doubt, by Alice's charms, Redfern was persuaded to fetch Edward from the pub, which he dutifully did, returning a short while later, a drunk and disdainful Edward staggering behind him. Any hope Harriet had that the time apart from her husband might have dulled his temper was short-lived. Before it clattered and crashed through the door, she could hear shouts from the yard. From the upstairs window, peering from behind the shutters, she heard, You bad wench! He bawled towards the house, stumbling into the kitchen, a half-empty bottle of gin hanging from his hand. Why did you leave my house? With Harriet still upstairs, and Benjamin back out working in the field, Alice was alone as Edward entered. Grabbing her roughly by the shoulder, he pulled the slight Alice towards him and, jolting her head back by her hair, pressed the bottle's mouth to hers, trying to force her to drink. A terrified Alice was only saved from whatever Edward might have done as a result of her refusal when Harriet came flying downstairs to confront her husband. Releasing Alice, she pushed him aside and away but with the arrival of Harriet, Alice was of no longer interest to Edward. The real focus of his anger was his wife of just a few weeks and a score he had to settle. What followed was shocking to Alice. Harriet had told her the previous night about their fights, but to see it play out before her eyes was so much more distressing, so much more unsettling. The pair stalked each other around the table and across the kitchen, 
Edward throwing curses and insults at Harriet, which he returned with self-defensive venom. Edward would reach for and swipe at Harriet, at one point grasping her tightly by the shoulder, dragging her to the door and outside into the yard. With no desire to find herself cornered and alone in the house when Edward returned, Alice followed the pair outside, crossing and returning Edward at the doorway. She pleaded with Harriet to come indoors, that they should try and defuse the situation, with half an eye herself on, once all had calmed down, going back home to a family who were preparing for Christmas celebrations the following day. Despite Alice's optimism, it was only a matter of minutes before it became abundantly clear her attempt to pour oil on the couple's troubled waters was doomed to fail. With the row raging around her, she agreed that if she wanted, Harriet could return home with her and spend Christmas Day with her family, away from the farm and, more importantly, away from Edward. It was a solution that Edward seemed more than happy to countenance as he threw expletive-laden insults from the sofa. In her haste to escape, and with the wind and rain swirling around the yard, the two women were only very briefly outside before Harriet returned indoors to fetch a shawl. Collecting that as well as a headscarf, Harriet was pursued outside by a newly, inexplicably invigorated Edward. With a short, sharp, high-pitched whistle, Edward commanded his sheepdog to drive a small flock of his sheep to in front of the main farm gate, blocking either Harriet or Alice from leaving. There was more screaming, more swearing between the married couple, Harriet wishing to leave. Edward demanded she stay and then, as quickly as the dog had darted to command the sheep, Harriet made a sudden an uncharacteristically spirited vault over a low stone wall and into an adjoining field. Whether out of frustration at the escape or anger that he hadn't anticipated a method, a furious Edward followed Harriet over, but not before she scrambled over another wall and into the next field along. It was a scene which, if set to music, could have appeared comic, the two staggering across the farm, exchanging insults. There was nothing comic about the scene that played out before Alice. The venom and violent spite with which Edward pursued his wife, her face contorted with terror, her limbs uncontrollable with fear. With the dark winter evening drawing close, the chase disappeared into the encroaching winter mist, and with it, the last remaining memory Alice had of Harriet alive. A matter of hours later, her beaten and bloodied body would be pulled lifeless from the cold and isolated pond on the edge of Bleaklow Farm. At their core, both courtrooms and theatres are arenas where storytellers take centre stage. The barristers, like seasoned actors, step into a role and weave a narrative that transcends mere legalities. Each presents a carefully crafted tale, furnished with protagonists, antagonists, 
and a plot that unravels with suspense and intrigue. The legal script and the theatrical script converge in a shared pursuit, the art of persuasion. The jury, like a live audience, become an integral part in this immersive experience. The skilled barrister, much like a playwright, understands the power of connection, drawing the jury and audience into the lives and struggles of the characters. And just as a theatre audience is compelled to suspend disbelief, the jury is called upon to suspend judgment until the final act. The tension in the air, the anticipation of a verdict, these are the practical and emotional payoffs that define both realms. Both, too, are populated by characters whom, to jurors, do not exist or live beyond which is presented before them. The trial of Edward Wager for the murder of his wife Harriet offered an ensemble of characters as compelling and archetypal as any author could pen. They were called upon to reprise their roles, the parts they played in the tragedy of Christmas Eve 1866. Held at Derby Assizes just nine weeks after Harriet's death, the cast at the trial, called to give testimony as to what they knew of the night in question, all shared one thing in common. None of them claimed to have witnessed Edward drowning his wife. Most had witnessed, either on that night or previously, his violence towards her, and several, those who knew him best, spoke of the fear that they often felt once he'd taken drink, and the evil of the spirits had possessed him. Alice spoke of her and Harriet's time together with Edward at Bleaklow Cottage in the late afternoon, of how he'd threatened Harriet directly, as well as forcing drink upon Alice. She recalled his attempts to stop Harriet from leaving, his pursuit of her across the fields and into the night, as well as Harriet's desperate cries of, Help me! You'll murder me! To say that Harriet's pleas fell on deaf ears would be inaccurate as testified to by a local miner, Richard Sellers, who was nearby with his brother Roger, they heard Harriet's screams, but out of fear of Edward's anger turning on them, failed to respond, failed to intervene, failed to do anything but look the other way. Before diverting their gaze and ignoring her plight, they spoke of seeing Edward grabbing hold of the hem of Harriet's skirt as he stalked her up the steep and uneven slope. The terrified Harriet fell heavily, her lower jaw first making contact with the ground, the rest of her body following with a deep, heavy thud. Lay prone where she fell, blood seeping from her wound and across her face, Edward kicked her several times. Get up, you bloody bitch! Get up to bleat low! Then, with his boot again, Edward this time rolled Harriet's writhing body to the brow of the mound of a hill and over its edge, out of sight and down to where the miners knew there was a pond. A deep splashing and thrashing and the water, their cue to turn heel and flee the scene. The weather in the weeks leading up to Christmas 1866 had been dreadful. Rain had fallen near consistently for almost a fortnight. The streams had swelled into thundering rivers. Incidental puddles 
the ordinarily made home in the smallest indent in the landscape had graduated to the status of ponds. One such puddle pond sat aside the path from Bleaklow Farm to Great Longstone. The jury heard how William Goddard was travelling along the path when he noticed the outline of a body lay face down in the water. Approaching, he could see the body was that of a woman, a woman he knew, Harriet Wager. Her petticoats, soiled, white and sodden from the water that entangled themselves in her arms and legs, her body anchored to the water's edge by a limestone rock which rested on her back. With Bleaklow Farm just beyond the brow of the hill, Goddard set off to alert the family. He'd only known Harriet since her recent marriage to Edward, but he knew the farmer all right. He knew him for his temper, but surely even he wasn't capable of this. On entering the cottage, Edward was sat on the sofa and appeared disorientated, a bottle of gin by his side. On explaining the discovery of Harriet's body, the recumbent Edward wailed for the benefit of Goddard, but to his deceased wife. Poor ignorant bastard, they drown thyself. According to Goddard, Edward went on to explain that while, in drink, he kissed Alice Hancock. Harriet saw this, and in a doleful sorrow, she'd fled from the house. He tried to follow her, but on reaching the pond, she'd entered the water and drowned. He'd seen it with his own eyes, and he'd have gone in to save her, but the fact that in her broken-hearted anger, she might have drowned him. With Edward unwilling to help Goddard in bringing Harriet's body back up to the house, and a nagging suspicion that Edward's reputation with his fists as well as his stocky farmer's frame, that the circumstances explained didn't quite ring true. With that in mind, Goddard left the farm immediately to summon Police Inspector Cruitt from nearby Bakewell. Inspector Cruitt travelled from Bakewell to Bleaklow Farm, accompanied by William Goddard. Arriving late at night, Goddard led the inspector first to the body, which they retrieved from the water and solemnly repatriated to the farmhouse, laying the ice-wet and broken body of Harriet out on the kitchen table. Edward, with the contents of the gin bottle, which had accompanied him earlier in the evening almost gone, wailed with grief that he couldn't face viewing the body. He simply wanted to remember his wife alive, not in the state in which she'd put herself by her own agonised actions. With sensitivity to his loss, but with his instinct informed, not only by the portrait painted by Goddard, but also the injuries which became clear under the light of the kitchen, Crewe immediately placed Edward under arrest for the murder of his wife, transporting him immediately to the cells in Bakewell. For the benefit of the jury, Corrette painted a picture of a scene in a dark, damp hollow in which Harriet's body was found. The water, for ease of comparison today, would be understood as being about the size of a tennis court, though shallow at its edges, at the centre was nearly a metre and a half deep. Later inspections identified a patch of muddy clay with several footprints leading from the sloping bank into the water. Faint but defined blood spots were discovered on the leaves of a nearby fern, preserved by the hard frost that arrived in the chill of night.
Mr Wrench, a surgeon for Baslow, was the next to take the witness box. His descriptions of Harriet's injuries told the story of a vicious attack. Blood spilt from wounds around the face and head. Bruises just visible beyond the bloating and discoloration of her long to submerged body. Tragically, Harriet's 12-year-old son was called to testify as, while working out in the field, he'd seen Edward pursuing his mother. He spoke of what life had been like for him and his mother since the marriage to Edward, of how he was forced to live in the less than salubrious farm outbuildings, and while they had no recollection of his mother suffering direct violence at the hands of Edward, he was certainly quick-tempered, both with mother and son. Finally, and it was an element of the trial that both the jury and those assembled in the public gallery had been waited for, it was Edward's turn to speak. Before addressing the events of Christmas Eve, he was asked to confirm his previous interactions with the court. In pre-trial deliberations, it was judged that, as they related to his relationship with alcohol, they'd be admissible at the trial. These include an attack on a fellow drinker in a local pub, a case of indecency when he exposed his genitalia to a young woman, and a fight he'd started with the landlord of another public house who had accused of sort changing him over the price of an evening's drinking. With the image firmly planted of a man whose temper, when in drink, was liable to seem resort to violence and inappropriate anger, the story of his first marriage was laid before the court, one characterised in a written statement from his previous wife as troubled and punctuated with intermittent bouts of sadistic bullying and physical intimidation. As for the night of Harriet's death, Edward took the approach common to a great many who were caught between a lie and an admission. He freely offered up a minor indiscretion in an attempt to paint himself as an honest man. He claimed that, despite what Alice had said earlier in the trial about him forcing drink on her, the pair were in fact lovers and that Harriet had caught the pair in an intimate embrace, or, in the local dialect of the day, a clip. In horror at the discovery, Harriet, Edward claimed, fled from the farmhouse in heartbreak, her anguished cries bouncing from the walls of the outside yard before disappearing into the distance. Knowing his wife-to-be, Edward's words not mine, feeble of mind, Alice and he decided he should follow Harriet to make sure she was safe. When asked to explain the testimony already heard of how he'd behaved towards his wife on Christmas Eve, Edward could only think that the witnesses so far had mistaken his attempts to return his wife to the safety of the family home for violence. They were wrong, he pleaded. His shouts weren't of anger, but of concern and contrition. His chase was to see her well, he said, not harmed. Edward went on to explain that, at the water's edge, Harriet had thrown herself headlong into the centre of the pool and began thrashing around in a combination of sorrow and scorn. She hated him, she screamed, but she too hated herself. Fearing for what Harriet was capable of, Edward began removing his boots so as to enter the water and make his wife safe. Leave me, he told the court, she screamed. Come closer and I'll take you with me. In fear of his own safety, that Harriet would drown him as well as herself, 
he reluctantly retreated back to the farmhouse, to the sofa, to drink, until Mr Goddard came later in the evening, delivering the dreadful news. Providing the court with a somewhat superficial performance of characteristics that one might associate with regret, to the shock of the public gallery, Edward suggested that if the two miners, Roger and Richard Sellers, who spoke earlier in the proceedings of seeing Edward kick Harriet down the hill towards the pond, had been as concerned for Harriet's safety as he, and come to his aid in rescuing her, she might be alive today, attempting in some twisted way to place some of the responsibility for her death on them. The jury, when retiring to consider their verdict, were asked to resolve one simple question. Was Edward Wager responsible for drowning his wife? Within that question, a number of scenarios may have played out. Did Edward physically push Harriet below the water and drown her? Might she, in fear of her life, be driven into the water, much like a sheepdog does with its flock, to escape Edward, fallen into difficulty and drowned? Was what Edward offered as an explanation true? Had she entered the water of her own volition, under no pressure from him, and took her own life? Only the latter, Harriet choosing to enter the water herself, would see Edward escape in a finding of guilt and a possible death sentence. In delivering the conclusion of their discussions, the jury not only provided a unanimous decision, but also accompanied it, unusually, with a request to the judge. The verdict was guilty with a recommendation of mercy, on the grounds that although Edward's conduct alone drove his wife to take her own life, he didn't actually force her into the water. When sentencing, the judge agreed that as there were no witnesses to what had actually occurred, he viewed the jury's verdict as understandable and sound. However, given Edward's past convictions and the testimony of reliable and trustworthy witnesses as to the events that immediately led up to Harriet's death, he was less inclined to be merciful towards Edward and passed the highest punishment available to the court, the death penalty. The uh, Peak District is a beautiful place to visit any time of year, but in the summer when the sky is clear of clouds and you can see for, for miles in the distance there's rolling hills and deep age-worn valleys, uh, patchworks of fields dotted with ancient stones and outcrops and dwellings, hill and sheep uh, and long abandoned lead mines. On a day like this though, in December, with the low clouds stubbornly 
battling with the winter winds and yeah touch of rain there is very little you can see but you get a sense of the closeness of nature uh, the wind and the, that kind of soggy embedded coldness that you only get in Britain it's never far away I am stood on Longstone Edge looking out at what I think is probably where Bleaklow Farm once stood I say probably because well A the uh, the visibility is terrible and B I'm not entirely sure where its exact location is over time place names evolve and alter and it seems that Bleaklow Farm um, at times I think been known as Blakelow Farm and identifying where it is exactly on historic maps has it's been a bit tricky there is a rather swanky holiday let just below the clouds called Bleaklow Farm uh, I say it's a holiday let it's, it's a pretty high end and it's won some Airbnb prizes for being one of the best properties. It's huge too. It's got amazing facilities. And there's room, I think, for something like 15 people, 20 people or something, over two individual lets. I guess it's less of a holiday let now, more of a kind of a wedding venue or a family reunion of far-flung members and because we're banging the centre of the country it's probably a good spot for that being here this time of year does give you a very acute sense of the conditions that Harriet would have fled into on that Christmas Eve as I, as I think I said the rain had fallen hard and pretty consistently during the late autumn and early winter of 1866 and not dissimilar to today and, and now the ground would have been heavy the air cold and the nights dark under the clouded sky I, I mentioned the lead mines and the sheep farming before and these two industries for want of a better word dominated life around these parts in the, in the 19th century and Edward's family were influential and successful in both fields 
the, the, the Derbyshire Record Office holds documents dating back to the family significance, something like to the mid, I think 1740s, 70s, 50s, something like that. And Bleaklow Farm was just part of a larger family interest in the area. And their family status might go somewhere to explaining what happened after Edward was sentenced to death. The kind of local luminaries, people of title and money lobbied the Home Secretary that Edward should be spared the hangman's noose. That he was simply afflicted by drink and that when sober he was level-headed and diligent. His solicitor, Mr Wheatcroft, spoke of him being simply caught in a, a moment of, of rage, almost trying to suggest in his letters to the Home Secretary that it was a, a close to an insanity and that his client had sworn off drink for life. Stories began appearing in the press about how his first wife had began visiting him in jail and taking their children and that if she could see a change in the man before her a man who had previously under the influence of alcohol he keeps emphasizing been violent towards her then then surely if she could forgive that if there was and she could see a change there was some hope of of redemption and a soul saved it seems a strangely modern thing that the media is used to shape narratives, sway government decisions, but it does appear that what, 150 years ago exactly the same thing was going on. In, in one element that's oddly reminiscent of today, in the sort of Facebook and Twitter of the time, the letters pages of the quality press, arguments were made in favour and against commuting Edward's sentence to one of life imprisonment. The argument against, and it's one that seemed to hold quite a lot of sway within the public conversation anyway was kind of articulated there was a, a a piece in the Daily Telegraph in February that year and it emphasised not only the brutality of Harriet's killing but also the callous nature that Edward displayed in leaving the scene returning home to his sofa and his gin. At one point petitions were made to Downing Street by a delegation of 
Derby landowners and noblemen appealing that Christian leniency should be shown to Edward. And by the end of March in 1866, just a few weeks after being sentenced, Edward had his death sentence commuted to a life of penal servitude. That, however, wasn't quite the end of the story. By the late 1860s, early 1870s, transportation to Australia as a punishment was becoming less common. Instead, as criminal justice became more and more a matter for Westminster, as opposed to a ragtag patchwork of local and regional bodies, it was replaced with sentences of penal servitude. Within a prison setting, a convict would be made to work long hours of physical labour. Some of the tasks would be of a practical nature, breaking stones for the building of roads and buildings. Others were simply a form of perpetual activity, such as the prison treadwheel. Put simply, treadwheels comprised of a lengthy wooden cylinder, approximately two centimetres in diameter, supported by a large wooden frame. Wooden steps, spaced approximately 20 centimetres apart, adorn the exterior of the cylinder. When a prisoner applied weight to a step, it lowered the wheel, compelling them to ascend to the step above. On completing the step, the cylinder would turn again, demanding they take the next step. Then the cylinder would turn again, and a new step would present itself. A staircase never reaching a destination. Each treadwheel featured 18 to 25 what today would be described as cubicles, one per inmate, each section divided by a wooden partition to ensure no direct contact was possible between adjacent cubicles. In silence, facing only a wall positioned right before their eyes, the prisoners traversed the wheel in silence for six hours a day, alternating between 15-minute intervals on the wheel and five-minute breaks. This was the life that lay ahead for Edward Wager. The problem was, though, whereby in the past people convicted of relatively minor crimes were simply shipped to Australia, now they were being imprisoned in the UK, and as such, the rapidly expanding prison population was growing at a faster rate than the prison estate was able to keep up with. A solution was found, though, whereby some prisoners, often described as gentlemen prisoners, who were maybe professionally capable of more than rock-breaking, were sent to Australia to serve their sentence, working in a way that could contribute to the young colony. Now, Edward was no nobleman. He wasn't titled or university educated. He was, however, literate. A practical man who was ran his own farm, but more importantly, came from a Derbyshire family with some influence. And it's probably because of that, after just serving over a year of his sentence, Edward was transported to Australia. After a three-month voyage on a ship called the Huguenot, one of only two transportation ships that year, Edward arrived in Western Australia 
on the 9th of January 1868. The general rule was that those transported to Australia would serve a set proportion of their sentence working, dependent on behaviour, for free under the control of the colonial administration, after which they were issued with a toll, a ticket to leave, which allowed them to work and live for themselves as long as they never left Australia. With good conduct, a convict serving a seven-year term usually qualified for a ticket to leave after four or five years, whilst those serving 14 years could expect to serve between six and eight years. Lifers, like Edward, who had been sentenced to 99 years of penal servitude, would qualify for consideration only at a minimum of 12 years. It seems something of a surprise, therefore, when consulting the British Convict Transportation Register, that within just eight years, Edward has awarded a ticket to leave. Although unable to leave Australia, he was effectively a free man and established himself as a general labourer and handyman in the Western Australian town of York. And that is how Edward lived out the rest of his life, working for himself, owning his own home set in a fair piece of land. According to records, he never again attracted the interest of the police, although his swearing off alcohol didn't seem to last the voyage, as he was known among friends as something of a drinker. It was one of those friends who discovered his body when he died. Edward had recently been ill, complaining of a pain and tightness in his chest. It had been going on for weeks and nothing seemed to be making a difference. Thomas Fisher, a gardener from nearby Mingleland, decided to pop around to check on him, only to discover Edward lay out on the floor of his home. Edward was 55 years old. The date he was discovered dead the day his death certificate marks his death, Christmas Eve. 29 years to the day when, on a dark winter's night in Derbyshire, Edward pursued his wife Harriet across the fields of their farm, over the brow of the hill which he kicked her, and into the pond below, where she was to drown. Leaving behind two sons, one an adult finding his way in the world, the other a young boy of twelve. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, "'in hope that St Nicholas soon would be there. "'The children were nestled all snug in their beds, "'while visions of sugar-plums danced in their heads, "'and Mamma in her kerchief and I in my cap "'had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. "'When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, threw open the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a lustre of midday to the objects below. And what to my wondrous eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick I knew in that moment it must be St Nick. More rapid than eagle his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. 
Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As the leaves that before the wild hurricanes fly, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the courses they flew, with a sleigh full of toys and St Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pouring of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot, and a bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and his beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe that he held in his teeth, and the smoke encircled his head like a wreath. And he had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know there was nothing to dread. He spoke not a word but was straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying a finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh and his team gave a whistle and away they all flew like down on the thistle but I heard him exclaim as they drove out of sight Happy Christmas to you all, and to you all, good night.